1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like pastry, flatulence
2: and bell-bottoms. Oh, I think we could sort of merge those together, couldn't we? Into one sort of, (laughs) you know, Uber episode. Or we could do King's Rings and Things... Wings, strings and pings. Pings is all about uh, the Covid crisis and being pinged, I think. However, that is to monstrously digress, which we don't want to do, because what we should be doing and what we will be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of smugness is in fact all about toxic insults, contemporary politics and the Oxford-AstraZeneca Covid jab, the myth of the overconfident Icarus, he of the melting wings depicted by Peter Bruegel, the elder, as a pair of legs poking out of the sea, as well as about Schadenfreude, the joy of having someone else's smugness punctured. It's also all about Napoleon, of course it is, it's about Nelson... Siegfried Sassoon suicided the trenches and the horrors of trench warfare during World War One. And, of course, the history of scrumping. Who knew? (laughs) Or who knew that the history of rhyming, something I'm very fond of, is in fact all about the history of the singing game and the transmission of dance songs across the centuries to children's playgrounds? It's about Renaissance verse, Petrarchan sonnets, Thomas Wyatt and the court of Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn and world war one it 's also all about Edward Lear and nonsense, Limericks, and professional writing for a living. Who knew Sam Willis?
1: <laughs> I enjoyed that one I, my favorite My favorite episodes, I think, have been the history of rhyming and the history of nonsense mm. uh, the internet 's favorite episodes are different. They are the history of the bottom and the history of cats. Yes, I can imagine yeah, we should do nonsense. more cats. More should, cats and, more bo- cat- and cats more bottoms. bottoms. Let's do cats' yes. bottoms. We can do that. Uh, you're probably wondering who's telling you all this wonderful stuff. Let me say of my fellow presenter that if he could take the past off a shelf, wrap it up and gift it to each and every one of you, he would. He is the father Christmas of the past with a sack full of history, the bringer of good and unsolicited historical tidings, the man just waiting to donate to anyone wandering by with a hole in their knowledge like a missing piece of jigsaw. He is the gift giver extraordinaire at the fourth front of the endowment of the present with the past. He is Professor Extraordinaire
2: of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And once again, I'm completely lost on that, but it sounded brilliant. (laughs) You may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a generosity-related historian, he'd only give you the scholarly shirt off his back. So keen is he to cure the poverty of knowledge of the past. He'd cast shekels far and wide. So full of zeal is he to enrich the world with knowledge of the past. So munificent is he that he would present the historical equivalents of gold, frankincense and myrrh as gifts to those bereft of an understanding of history. Yes, you've guessed it. It's your friend and mine, the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, hello everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Um, and welcome to our episode
1: on the history of generosity. It is part, it is the final part of our Christmas mini series that we've been doing. James and I get very overexcited and do lots and lots of episodes this time of year. Uh, I particularly enjoyed our episode on babies
2: and donkeys this this year. James, what about you? I liked this the first one the introduction to Christmas because that gets us oh. all thinking about uh, all about Christmas and I love uh, talking about Charles Dickens and Christmas Carol and that was really exciting these incredibly valuable edition, first editions of Christmas Carol being sold for tens of thousands of pounds but for this, this one on generosity, I was inspired by something that I read in the newspaper this week. I don't know whether you saw this, but Lost Library of Literary Treasures Saved for the UK After Charity Raises 15 Million Pounds. This is, of course, about the Honresfeld Library, which had all sorts of rare manuscripts by famous, well-known writers, such as the Brontes, Jane Austen, Walter Scott, and there was... Fear that it would fall into private hands until the um, the um, National Heritage Memorial Fund and uh, a group of libraries got together and started raising money, and they raised enough money in order to save it. And one of the most generous people, I think, this is Britain's wealthiest individual, a guy called Sir Leonard uh, Blavatnik. Um, he donated, I think, four million pounds, something like that. Uh, he he decided that he would match fund everything, and what it's meant is that all of these amazing things have been have been saved. And this was a collection that was assembled in the nineteenth century by a mill owner, uh, one William Law. And it's been inaccessible for eighty years, and it's got all sorts of treasures in it. Um, the charity that was leading this fundraising drive was the Friends of the National Libraries, and what they're going to do now is basically donate each each of these works to various libraries around the country. so it's brilliant and just to quote the Friends of the National Libraries, they thanked uh, Blavatnik. Uh, for his exceptional munificence and said that in recognition of his great generosity, uh, there we are, the key word, the collection will be henceforth known as the blavatnik Honresfeld Library. Uh, So there we are, Sam, an act of generosity in our time. There's a lovely quote from a a friend of mine, Dr Gabriel Heaton, who's at, at Sotheby's. He's a manuscript specialist there. Um, hello, Gabriel, if you're listening, which I imagine you're not. Uh, like no other that has come to the market in recent decades, this collection, we were amazed and delighted at the incredible ambition of the Friends of National Library's plan to inquire the whole, acquire the whole library. And they deserve every credit for bringing their campaign to a successful conclusion. Their success is a testament to what can be achieved by the collaboration of public institutions and private collectors. The other thing to mention is this generosity is not just by very wealthy individuals, but also by members of the public. And millions were raised by individuals donating small amounts from their hard-earned money in order to preserve this literary heritage. Mm, lovely lovely story great
1: stuff to hear um you know being generous does
2: release endorphins
1: i read that the other day giving giving something of uh giving giving a gift giving something of your time whatever it be being generous being charitable to people lit physically makes you feel better so there's a plenty good reason to for us all to be doing it. And i think it's one of the reasons that everyone feels so good about themselves on christmas day it's the joy of giving more so than the joy of receiving um I immediately thought of my favourite psychological experiment. Uh, I've, I've become, through histories of the unexpected, become slightly obsessed with uh, psychological experiments uh, from the mid-20th century. This one uh, its called The Ultimatum Game from the 80s. I think I've mentioned this before, but I couldn't remember in what episode. Um, it's called The Ultimatum Game. It's absolutely fantastic. So you've got two people... Who are randomly matched and one is a proposer the other one is the responder and what they do is they play a game and they play it once what happens is that the proposer is given a certain amount of money and he or she suggests a division of that amount of money between uh, him or herself and and the other person the other person then quite simply decides whether to accept or reject the offer if the division of money is accepted then they both keep that amount of money, but if rejected, then both the proposer and the responder earn nothing from the experiment. So say you've got a hundred pounds i would you know would I offer you James fifty pounds and um and you know do you accept that or do you not um and it's really interesting what it reveals about people and uh most people offer between 40 and 50% of the of the actual amount of money and that split is almost always accepted by the other uh by the other side um but when it it fails it, it fails that's when it goes down to about 20% of the endowment and the um and the the, the receiver says actually so you I'm not going to I'm not going to uh accept that and we will both have nothing um anyway a fascinating experiment which has been used to um What's interesting you see is if you if you if you enact that experiment with different cultures around the world, um, and you get different answers, and it's really helped us understand uh, the history of bargaining and and the history of people's relationship with money and generosity over time. So I wanted to mention that, James, um, and I'm going to go on and I'm going to talk about the Plantagenets and uh, particularly Henry the Sixth and maybe a bit of Romans.
0: Oh,
2: lovely! Well, I'm oh. going to talk a little bit about gift giving. Uh, we've talked about gift giving in the past we've done a whole episode on gifts but inspired by the nativity and the three wise men this is where we're we're coming from here the gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh I'm interested in telling you a little bit about the tradition of gift giving at Christmas and this is something that comes from the bible and the 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 three wise men but also it is it's earlier than that so gift giving was around in the ancient pre-christian world it then becomes associated with the christian feast of christmas but in ancient rome it has always been part of the winter celebrations the winter solstice in december around um, sat the saturnalia holiday and there are various sort of gifts that would have been given at around this time um It starts off that early Christian rulers um, interpret the giving of gifts as subjects should give gifts to them rather than the other way round and that in fact what we see is tributes uh going to people um post reformation though I think there's a big shift and and christmas gift giving to superiors becomes much less becomes much less common and actually is transformed in terms of gift giving to children and i think that's one of the one of the many sort of shifts that we see but this idea of gift giving indeed has a really early tradition. The, the clever archaeologists at the at English Heritage, who look after Stonehenge and various sort of sites associated with that, have seen Stonehenge as a site for feasting and gift exchanging to commemorate the end of the year and the beginning of the next. Uh, We talked about this when we talked about Christmas in our first Christmas episode and we talked about mince pies there, but actually in the excavations at Durrington Walls near Stonehenge there were about 38,000 animal bones from pigs and a few cattle uh, that survived most of which would have been slaughtered around mid-winter time. Um, I think I think what what is fascinating is the way in which we can trace the shift in gift-giving cultures across time. If we think about medieval gift traditions, we can see this in various places, different sort of um, gifts that were given and connected to particular abbeys, for example. Um, and there were there was a, an abbey where there was a tradition of giving Uh, relics uh, to people Um, there are also if we look at the Tudor period there is a spate of competitive gift giving and we've talked in the past about the Elizabethan gift rolls uh, being these incredible documents that record all the gifts that would have been given to the monarch on New Year's um, and the gifts that were given back but I want to give you uh, some examples from slightly earlier in the Tudor period. Again, exchanged at New Year. And these are gifts exchanged between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Get these for generous gifts. So in New Year 1532, Anne Boleyn gave Henry VIII, and I quote, an exotic set of richly decorated Pyrenean boar spears. And Henry gave Anne Hangings of cloth of gold, cloth of silver and embroidered crimson satin for her room and bed. And the king, this is telling, refused to accept the gift of a gold cup sent to him by his wife at the time, Catherine of Aragon. So gift giving (laughs) there actually gets you right to the heart of the relationship between Henry and Anne Boleyn and how he was feeling towards Catherine of Aragon. New Year 1533, from Henry to Anne. This is what Henry Eighth gave Anne Boleyn. Parcels of gilt plate late of Sir Henry Guilford, controller of the household. Two gilt pots with round knobs behind the lids which came to Sir Henry as executor, to Sir William Compton, weighing 133 ounces. That it, that heavy, 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 very valuable. A pair of gilt flagons with the arms of France, 147 ounces. Six gilt bowls with a cover, 200 and a half ounces. Six gilt salts with a cover of pears, um, touch, Which belonged to Sir William Compton seventy-seven ounces twelve gilt spoons with demi-knots at the end weighing eleven ounces a pair of parcel gilt pots ninety-nine and a half ounces another ninety-seven and three-quarter ounces another seventy-one ounces Six parcel gilt bowls with cover, 199 and a quarter ounces, and so it goes on. Four candles, white, with high sockets, 86 and a half ounces, a round basin of silver for a chamber and a silver pot to the same, weighing 138 and a half ounces, and a chafing dish parcel gilt, 39 and three quarter ounces. So there's this incredibly generous, lavished gift giving. In New Year. 1534, from Anne Boleyn to Henry, a goodly gilt basin, having a rail or board of gold in the midst of the brim, garnished with rubies and pearls, wherein standeth a fountain, also having a rail of gold about it, garnished with diamonds, out thereof issueth water, at the teats of three naked women, standing at the foot of the same fountain. Now, of course, this is very highly elevated wealthy royal individuals but also ordinary people exchanged gifts as well you'd often this is where gloves come in you'd often have the gifts put in inside gloves glove money would be given to servants at this time oranges cloves those those kinds of things you know just as just as as much as sort of uh, as the wise men might have given gold and sort of rich rich spices and I think one of the things that we see also is a a shift in practices from the medieval to the modern, uh, not only in terms of timing, but also in terms of who the gifts are given to. If you think about uh, Christmas Day, very broadly. Traditionally, it was marked by feasting, wassailing, and generally, you know, pretty sort of loud, raucous, antisocial behaviour. Bands of young men would go from door to door, singing carols, drinking from a wassail bowl, and getting gifts in return. What happens, though, is that it, this sort of... Um, This emphasis here is upon adults rather than children. And with the advent of Father Christmas um, as the sort of master of ceremonies for gift-giving to children, things shift from adults towards children and the family. And this is something that we see shifting in the Victorian period when Christmas becomes a time for family celebrations with the emphasis on... Gifts to children and the Christmas in the home, surrounded by the family, and so this gift giving also shifts not only from the um, from adults to children and the family, but also the date shifts from early December or New Year to actually Christmas, either Christmas Eve or or Christmas Day. And there are various sort of different traditions that people might have had. So here we are. I've got you that uh, example of the medieval uh, gift giving. Um, There is a, a, a list of accounts at Battle Abbey from the 13th through to the early 16th century. And it records things spent on Christmas presents for the monastery's servants. And there's a medieval manuscript listing relics once housed at Battle Abbey in East Sussex. Um, that basically shows festive gifts bestowed by William the Conqueror and holy offerings by King John. And dating from the mid 15th century, it lists 30 or so relic inventories that were given. Okay, and it, it. Seasonal highlights include relics from the ground where Christ was born, relics from the manger, relics from the crib, relics from the swaddling, relics from the bed the Virgin was lying in when he was born, a hair shirt and finger bone of St. Nicholas, obtained by the battle monks themselves, possibly in 1089, when the saints' relics were moved to a shrine in Italy, stones used to stone St. Stephen. Uh, His his feast day is the 26th of December, Boxing Day. I know. Relics of several holy innocents killed on the orders of King Herod which is a feast on the 28th of December thought to have been part of William the Conqueror's gift. So, you know, that quite quite extraordinary gift-giving. And we can follow this all the way through to the the whirlwind of consumption and Black Friday and everything that is associated with gift-giving nowadays. And the amount of money that is spent each year is extraordinary. I think I read somewhere that you know annually at around this time of year, it's billions of dollars are spent in the U.S. as people buy presents for each other. Mm. I I love that list, especially with the Tudors. Was it boar
1: spears that Anne Boleyn gave? Right. So, how did she buy them? Did she have any money herself? We know. I mean, I don't know anything about. Uh, I suppose it, the point is, it raises the question of where Ambling got her money from, and also uh. where she got the boar spears from. So, would, I mean, how does that actually work? She can't go onto her phone and go boar spears on Amazon. So, had, had, do you reckon someone came to her with the boar spears and said, I think these would make a wonderful gift for the king? She said yes. <laughs> or do you think she said, I really want to get Henry a set of boar spears and then and then said that to her, her man, who then went to Norway, wherever they came from. Where did they come from? Germany or something?
2: I, 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 uh, Pyrenean uh, Pyrenean, sorry. Okay, yes. Spanish. Hmm. Um, so, I think... To, I mean, if you think about her, she is a, an aristocratic daughter. Her father is very well connected at court. Uh, court is the centre of culture, chivalric culture. So this sort of knightly culture is really at its apogee during the reign of Henry VIII. It's something that he is deeply keen on. You know, he's constantly fighting personally in tourneys and tournaments and mock battles and so she's actually buying him something that he'd really like and my guess is that there are armourers at court who would be, you know, she would absolutely know about and this is is actually not just a generous gift but it's also a gift that she knows you know, the braggadocious Tudor monarch would love yeah but I don't know is the true answer. I've just sort of, no, no. you know, talked about, talked round an and entry. about that.
1: And um, I also love the uh, the fact of giving um, giving relics. Mm. Um, I've never heard of giving stones used at the stoning. That's amazing. Um, anyway, it, it kind of links on to what I was going to talk about, which is, and it's a similar period, actually, but I want to talk about Henry VI. So this is the chaotic period before the Tudors come in, um, you know, pre-Wars of the Roses and all of that. Um, because he was incredibly generous he was too generous and he got himself in a right right heap of trouble by giving away loads and loads of stuff uh particularly land because land is one of the sources that um royalty gets their their income from and henry um just gave, gave away so so much land um that it was actually it was reclaimed by something called the acts of resumption um uh, which are which are very important but it um it it sought to undo all of the bad things Henry VI had done when he finally uh, got into 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 power himself. Anyway, one of the things he gave away were some relics, including, uh, believed to be, a part of the True Cross and the Crown of Thorns, and he gave them to Eton College. Now... Henry VI's history is really interesting because not only was he generous in um, giving away to his friends and people in court huge tracts of land, but he was also very generous to um, the youth of England. What he wanted to do was to invest in education. It was a major part of what Henry believed in. And he endowed um, Eton College and also King's College in Cambridge. Um, And it was Designed to to be the next step up on, so the students would go to Eton College, then from there they would go on to King's in Cambridge. Now, when he endowed Eton College, um, he he gave it a huge amount of land and really really valuable land. I mean, this is a list of all of the people. there's a, 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 a list of the fe- feoffees. I don't actually know how to pronounce that. Uh, feoffees. Feffies. Thank you, James. It's a, a list of the Feffies appointed by the king to receive forfeited lands uh, for the alien priories for the endowment of Eton. So the Archbishop of Chichely, Chichel. I've never heard of that either. Bishop Stafford, uh, Bishop Lowe, Bishop Ascoff, William de la Pole, Thomas Beckington, Richard Andrew, Adam Mullins, John Hampton, James Fines, William Tresham. All of these people... Owned immense amounts of land, which had actually already been given to them by Henry VI. A lot of them, um, as extra, uh, as extra gifts, and then in turn they were passed on to Eton College, along with a handful of relics, including the True Cross. And the crown of thorns, and also a collection of um, some of England's most important medieval manuscripts, um, something that was known as the Apocalypse manuscripts. Now Henry does get into immense trouble with all of this um, by simply giving away too much, and they try and recover it all um, through the acts of um, the acts of resumption later on in the fifteen seventy, and also a lot of the. Um, uh, a lot of the grants given to Eton were were annulled when Edward IV becomes king in 1461, and a lot of the assets and the treasures, everything that had been sort of generally uh, generously given from the hands of the king, from royal control to Eton College, were then taken back into royal control. And a lot of those assets and treasures and relics and whatever might be, and all the land as well, was was um, was taken to Lin- to Windsor, and it was brought back under royal control so in terms of royal generosity henry the sixth really is one of the most interesting characters uh, you could possibly come across um, because you see how very vividly differently um, people think about um what the king should be giving away what he should control uh, because of the what happens after um after the the end of henry the sixth reign and then and then the 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 new reign of edward the fourth
0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
2: Oh, Sam, that sounds very festive Mm. for us. Now, I wanted to... Go in uh go, sort of go back to where I started at the beginning with my example of saving manuscripts for the nation, and I wanted to think about generosity in terms of philanthropy and giving things and I wanted to talk in particular about the founding of the Folger Shakespeare Library, which is one of the world's best and greatest collections of Material books, manuscripts relating to Shakespeare. Uh, and I'm going to talk about this uh, for a little bit now. And it was founded by Henry Clay Folger and his wife, Emily Jordan Folger. And he was a wealthy uh, industrialist. So he was born in New York on the 18th of June, 1857. And he um, went to work in the oil industry um, and the Standard Oil, and he goes along there, and he has learns the oil business, he receives a law degree uh, from columbia university master 's degree from Amherst, he marries uh, Emily Jordan, who becomes his wife in eighteen eighty five and she is really pivotal in. Helping him fulfil his lifetime project of collecting everything, all materials by associated with Shakespeare, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, about what that collecting was in a little bit. Um, he basically. In 1911, there's an antitrust breakup of Standard Oil. He becomes president of Standard Oil Company of New York. It later becomes Mobil Oil. And he's given a an honorary doctorate for efforts of collecting Shakespeare by Amherst College. He becomes the chairman of the board of Standard Oil of New York in 1923. He retires in March 1928 and devotes himself full-time to plans for the Folger Shakespeare Library, dies in 1930 They the building they've identified where the Shakespeare Library was going to be built but the building and the sort of first stone has been laid but it's not actually opened um, before he dies but it's all of this oil money that then gets put very generously to other purposes to build up a massive collection and Bequeath it to uh, the nation, um, but also key is not just Folger himself, but also his wife Emily Jordan Folger. Um, she was born on the fifteenth of May, eighteen fifty-five. Her father was a lawyer, newspaper editor um, during the Lincoln and Johnson administrations. He's a solicitor of the Treasury Department in Washington D.C. Um, her she um, her mother. Uh, was Mary Augusta Jordan was a professor at Smith College uh, from 1884 to 1921. Um, and uh, Emily Jordan goes to Vassar, which is a all-woman's uh, college at that time, in 1879. Um, she is herself a, you know, a, a, a sort of a renowned scholar. And it's this... It's this sort of expertise that she has that allows her to help her husband with growing his Shakespeare collection and keeping up-to-date records of the contents of the collection. And the two of them sort of review auction house catalogues for possible acquisitions. And she's the one that advises him on these purchases. And she has a writes a master's degree at VASA uh, on... on the title of which is on the true text of Shakespeare. So she's really quite sort of, you know, quite knowledgeable and experienced. Um, now, what's fascinating is the amount of collecting that they did, um, which I'll talk about in uh, in a little bit. But they find a venue for the Shakespeare Library. And they, fire, they spent some years sort of scouting around for various places. They're obviously being wooed by places like Amherst uh, and Vassar, you know, with the hope that you know that the the library would go there. And there are some potential sites at Amherst College in New York, Stratford upon Avon. Um, but what they decide is that they are going to build it near the capital in Washington D.C. Um, after. They basically discover um, the the site that they'd like to build it on um, after having after travelling from from um, uh, travelling by train and coming out at Union Station and spending some time there. And then what he does is this was a sort of a a normal street with a row of townhouses. And over a nine-year period, having decided this is where it wants to go, he buys up the entire row uh known as Grant's row and then has them demolished before the library is constructed and as i said he you know he he dies before it before it sort of comes uh before it's actually opened but but you know he is able to have secured the place for it building's been started they hire a group of architects to do it there there's an elizabethan theatre there that's placed at the east end of the of the building it's a couple of blocks from the capitol building uh it's it, absolutely amazing i've spent uh, i spent a couple of years there and it is one of the most extraordinary places for uh early modern Uh, scholarship and particularly if you're interested in Shakespeare it's the place to go to and I'll just give you a sense of of what they collected because it has 260,000 printed books, 60,000 manuscripts, 90,000 prints, drawings, photographs and paintings and also something like a quarter of a million playbills Relating to films, recordings, and stage costumes, so it is in, it is incredible absolutely incredible now let me just give you a sense of the Shakespeare collection alone. The Shakespeare collection includes hundred and seventy eight early modern quarto editions of shakespeare's plays and poems wow, that's unbelievable it's unbelievable so these the quartos are those little you think of the first folio, which is the sort of, you know, the, the collected works. These little quartos are small and inexpensive books that would have been, you know, would have been used in Shakespeare's lifetime. So they have a, almost 200 of them. They are really rare. Uh, they are sometimes the only known survivals. Um, they've got, for example, a first edition of Titus Andronicus. They also collect multiple copies because what they're they're interested in studying the printing history, but also copies that have annotations in them, because then you can actually start studying how people read and and sort of interpreted Shakespeare in addition to those quartos and this is the most impressive you've seen have you ever seen a first folio no. I mean, it's it's huge. Imagine like a big Bible. Oh, it's right, a right. really impressive, impressive book. They have 82 copies of the 1623 first folio. So this is the first collected edition of the plays. They also hold 58 copies of the second folio, uh, 1632, and 23 copies of the third folio. 1663 to 64 and 38 copies of the fourth folio for printed in 1685. I once got taken down into these stacks to have a look at their collection and I've seen the wall of these editions and it is probably the most impressed I have ever been in a library. I literally like had to sort of, my jaw dropped as i saw it Um they also have continental books they have 35000 early modern printed books from the european continent <laughs> and 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 what's more it also has an incredible secondary literature section i mean it's a voluminous library so there we are and all of this is upon the generosity of Folger himself and what's fascinating is thinking about how they collected themselves this is a husband and wife who were just obsessed with it and had the wherewithal and the resource the experience the learning to go out and find all these things and I remember talking to some of the the people uh, who'd worked there and there was a period where after the second world war And Britain wasn't, you know, was in sort of a phase of rebuilding and a lot of things were coming onto the market. And, you know, the the people who worked at the Folger were just given checkbooks and could come across and just tour around the secondhand, you know, antiquarian bookshops and just hoovered up. All sorts of things. I mean, Folger used to, used to go to auctions uh, anonymously and use second parties, third parties to actually bid for him, so that he wasn't sort of fleeced for them. And so they've they've just, you know, put together this amazing uh, generous collection. It makes you think about why, what the motivation for generosity,
1: doesn't it? Um, so hmm. I suppose the Folgers, what they were being generous to themselves first. Is that what
2: you do when you're a collector? You, are you generous to yourself? I think the idea is that you you want to collect and then and then bequeath then yeah 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 um
1: nevertheless the um I think motivation for generosity is obsession really interesting. I think and um yes that's another good point another another reason for for that kind of collection is that you can't stop um Looking at the Romans, Roman charity is very interesting because it really does highlight the issue of motivation for generosity. Particularly in Rome, you you couldn't really get any public support. I mean, without without lavishing um, uh, something entertaining or or generous with your own personal money onto the public there was no public life without generosity and the the opposite of that is that miserliness of course was scorned one of the most interesting examples we write about this in our histories of the unexpected the romans in the chapter on taming on taming wild animals the the games put on by brutus in 44 And so this is the spring of forty four. Brutus, of course, is one of the leading conspirators in the assassination of Caesar. And what happens in the aftermath of that is that a lot of the conspirators are forced into exile. Brutus himself goes to Crete, but he retains a rank, a really important rank, called Praetor Urbanus, because that allows him... He's a senior magistrate of Rome. It allows him to put on games. So it allows him to buy back into public popular opinion. And he doesn't just put on games from distant Crete. He puts on an enormous uh, games. um, And it's particularly noticeable for sourcing a huge number of exotic animals for the arena. In fact interestingly his games were scheduled first for that summer and tellingly in the, one of the few documents that survives relating to it um, he orders all of his agents to use every single wild animal in his games because the next person who's coming is, is Octavian Is Octavian? so that's Caesar's adopted heir, Octavian he has some games after Brutus and Brutus makes sure that there aren't any wild animals left to see in the arena But there's a fascinating history of um, uh, charity in Rome and how it changes. There's a particularly interesting chapter on, I think for us having gone through COVID, on on furlough schemes or on government support, whatever that might be, um, whether it's in finance or or in Roman times, in terms of grain. So they had something called the grain doll. Uh, It started off in 123 BC and by 62 BC they were handing out... Um, subsidised grain to something around 320,000 people. I thought it was a really uh, powerful sadistic to give you a sense of the power and the reach of the Roman Empire. And it wasn't just grain, and once they started with grain they moved on to bread and olive oil and wine and pork, James. So I thought thought they're probably some of my favourite things in the whole world. (laughs) And um, so the government, rather than giving you money on furlough, uh, if you were Roman living during the period of something like 193 3 to 211 AD during the reign of Septimius Severus, you could have a roast dinner.
2: <laughs> I
0: think or, I could, on
1: behalf of the Roman state. I think
2: I could survive on olive oil, wine, and pork. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> pork of various, it. various, and various bread. types. And bread. And There's bread. bread to go and with bread. it as well. <laughs> Goodness me,
2: what more could you want? I know. I know. Well, I just wanted to end with uh, just some some expensive gifts uh, that people have given. Uh, since it's the, the festive season, um, those of you thinking about giving gifts to your loved ones, just, just listen to these. Uh, one of the most expensive gifts that was given is the jewel in the crown. Um, the last Maharaja of the Sikh Empire, uh, Dulip Singh, presented to Queen Victoria a 186-carat uh noor Diamond in eighteen forty nine. This is a huge diamond and it needed to be cut down to hundred and five point six carats. And it's set in the the crown, uh in the and it's the sort of one of the highlights of the British Crown jewels. And just to give you an estimate of its value by comparison the hope diamond which is less than half its size at 45.42 carats is estimated to be worth in excess of um quarter of a billion dollars <laughs> so it's wow. that's quite a that's quite a, a thing and and when you when you're thinking of buying something for your wife sam I think of uh, in 1917 the new york banker morton plank traded his six story fifth avenue mansion for a $1 million pearl necklace from Cartier as a gift for his young wife, estimated at around $20 million today. Um, or think of the, the cosmetics billionaire Leonard Lauder, um, who in 2003 gave his $1.1 billion collection of Cubist masterpieces to New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. Or think of, I don't know whether you've heard of this, but um, Rod Stewart uh, wanted to exchange Christmas gifts with Elton John and he thought that he would buy him a top-of-the-range, swanky, portable refrigerator that was all (laughs) singing, all dancing. So he turns up, gives this to Elton, and Elton, in return, hands him a package. He opens it up and it is a Rembrandt painting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How stupid did he feel? So then, apparently, in 1990, when um, when Rod Stewart was marrying uh, Rachel Hunter, Elton apparently sent him a gift certificate uh, worth about £15 pounds from... Boots, the chemist, <laughs> the British chemists, enclosed with a note: get yourself something nice for the house.
1: <laughs> nice,
2: <laughs> very good, very good, brilliant.
1: Um, a bit of banter there between between two of our most loved musicians, yes. uh, guys. Thank you all so much for listening to our episode on generosity. I hope you've enjoyed it. I also hope you've really enjoyed our mini Christmas series. James and I have hugely enjoyed putting them together. If you want to uh, find out what's coming up in the new year, please follow me on Twitter at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in the history of the sea and ships uh, do please listen to my other podcast the Mariner's Mirror podcast
2: and you can follow me on twitter at James Daybell you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod we are also all over social media we're on Instagram we're on Facebook so check us out there and a big shout out at Christmas to James Cooper who runs a wonderful website Um, so google him up check him out it's a history of Christmas all sorts of interesting Christmas facts uh, for you there Um, you can also check out our website historiesoftheunexpected.com, for all our back catalogue including all our previous year's Christmas episodes if you've enjoyed this little series that we've done for you you can also get signed books for the new year uh, which is a brilliant way to start off. A New Year's resolution, read more history, read James and Sam. That's what you should be saying to yourself. <laughs> and if you would like to be a patron, head over to patreon.com and anything that you can give to help support us, change the way in which people think about the past would be very much appreciated. But meanwhile, happy festive season wherever you are. Hope that you are safe and well and enjoying yourselves. Take care, everyone. Cheerio, guys. Bye-bye.